Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. As we uh, continue to worship, I've been given the privilege uh, and the honor to introduce uh, the servant of God, bringing us the word of God uh, this morning, Dr. Conrad Mbewe. Uh, some of you will remember Dr. Mbewe was with us uh, two years ago, uh, and uh, he uh, blessed our church uh, by just uh, serving us so well, uh, preaching uh, to us. And uh, for those of you who do not know Dr. Mbewe, Dr. Mbewe is uh, the pastor, as uh, Springer just said, he's the pastor of Kabwata Baptist Church in Lusaka, Zambia. And uh, he has been a uh, pastor there since uh, 1987. Uh, he is a graduate of the Cape Town Baptist Seminary uh, in South Africa, and uh, he has also earned a PhD in missions from the University of Pretoria in South Africa. And uh, he is also the founding chancellor of the African Christian University uh, that Springer mentioned. Uh, so it's, it's pretty obvious then that the grace of God and the mercy of God and the blessing of God is on his ministry um, Conrad has led his church in planting about 32 new churches in Zambia and uh, across the African country, uh, across the African continent. Uh, he has um, a very full itinerant uh, ministry where he goes around the world preaching. And so I'm really thankful that the Lord has given us this opportunity uh, for him to come uh, and serve our church. Conrad is married uh, to his wonderful uh, wife, Felistas. Uh, they've been married for 33 years, and they've got six adult children. So, uh, Conrad, I'm really grateful to the Lord for you, and I would like to uh, ask you to come, and let's welcome and praise God for him. Thank you very much uh, for that uh, warm welcome, and uh, let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. Um, while you're doing that, let me use this opportunity to thank you as a church for your uh, partnership in the gospel, and uh, especially with respect to the uh, African Christian University. Uh, we are truly grateful for the way in which you have supported us. I'm glad that this time I've had opportunity in my return to come with my wife, because I have spoken about this church, not only to our church, but also to my own family and uh, uh, a number of friends in the leadership that I now have come to know. And so it was only going to make sense that uh, she would be a lot more identified with my excitement by her being here and uh, meeting with you, seeing you, and so on. Recently in my personal devotions, I've been going through the book of Psalms. And uh, it wasn't long ago when my eyes lighted upon Psalm 95, and uh, I just felt it had the kind of message that one ought to share with the gathered church 
as you are gathered here uh, this morning to remind us of some of the, the basic principles that are there with respect to worship. It's, it's challenged, it challenged me to think again about how I think through and participate in the act of worship. And basically, that's what I want to share with you this morning. So allow me to read Psalm 95 to you. <clears throat> oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loved that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This psalm is found in what is called the fourth book, in the book of Psalms, and um, one aspect that seems to be fairly clear concerning the Psalms in this particular book is that uh, they, they don't give you the background in which they were written. In fact, most of them, including the one we have just read, you just go into it. There, there, there isn't even some kind of little heading there to tell us who wrote it or even the, uh, the musical meter that it was supposed to be uh, sung in. There's just nothing. You just go straight into it. So the translators of our various Bible versions have provided a subheading there for us. And you, if you have a Bible like mine, it simply says, let us sing songs of praise. But you can't miss the fact that there is some aspect of it that deals with God's people gathering together, being invited into his presence in order to sing his praises. So whereas there are aspects of worship that we engage in as individuals on our own, uh, in the spirit, for instance, of Romans chapter 12, 
which in verse 1 speaks about us out of an appreciation of, of the mercy of God giving ourselves, our bodies, as a living sacrifice to God, which we are told there is your reasonable act of worship. And in Romans 12, was being challenged as individuals that whatever it is we are doing, we must do it as unto the Lord, as an act of worship to him. And that's worship as well, whether you are um, in a kitchen working or you are um, a carpenter or an individual who's a lawyer in um, the courts of law, you do it as unto the Lord. However, God in his grace has also summoned us to take a day out of seven to come away from all that, to, to gather with his people in order to worship him as you are doing uh, this morning. And so in this text, we have that first phrase, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. It's not you as an individual where you are, but collectively. Or again in verse 6, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. So wherever it is that you might be, Come away from all that. Let us together ascribe praise and glory and honor to our God. A previous generation spoke of what we are doing here as one of the means of grace. One of the ways in which God conveys the power of his grace to our hearts and to our lives to enable us go through the process of sanctification, becoming more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ until we are caught up with him in glory. And therefore, I'd like to encourage you never to give up the privilege of gathering with God's people in order to worship him. The challenge of COVID for many people has caused live streaming to go up in numbers in terms of people that are tuning in rather than being in the physical presence of God's people. Now, yes, sickness and all the rest of it might cause us to be back home and participating in an event like this. But as soon as you can, ensure you are physically with the people of God, worshiping together with them. Now, let's peep into this psalm and see the way in which it challenges us towards true worship, true congregational worship. Let's see how it challenges us to that. First of all, the challenge is plain, even from the heading that's been put in by those who translated the ESV, 
Bible. Let us sing songs of praise. In other words, the first challenge that comes to us from this psalm, uh, I'll show you later on that there is some claim in the New Testament that it was written by David, but for now I'll keep saying the psalmist, the psalmist, the psalmist, is to come to a place like this determined to participate in exuberant praise. In other words, it's not that I'm going to be sitting there simply wanting to go through some motions, but really determined that I want to, as it were, lift this roof with heartfelt praise to God. And that's what he says there uh, in verse 1 and verse 2. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And that joyful noise is repeated in verse 2. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make, again there, a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. That's the way in which this psalm begins. It's summoning us to participate in singing, but in doing so with the whole of our beings. Praising him because he is worthy of all praise. Now let's face it. Often the circumstances of our lives rob us of that determination. If the circumstances of our lives are very positive, if we are being blessed beyond measure, often yes, we say to ourselves, I cannot wait to get to church so that I might indeed participate in the praises of God. But when there has been friction within the marriage context, friction within the family context, friction within the working context, friction within the community, and things seem to be falling apart in your life, the tendency is to just keep away from a place like this, or if you come at all, to simply want to sit there and allow these activities to pass you by to the very end. So to imagine that coming from that background where things are going from bad to worse in your life and be expected to still de be determined to come and praise the Lord with joyful noise seems to be expecting too much but not with the psalmist. Because the reason the psalmist is giving for praising God this way has got very little to do with the outward circumstances we are going through in our own individual lives. Look at the way 
in which it is put here. In verse 3 to verse 5. Well, first of all, even before we get there, look at the way verse 1 is put. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. And here it is, to the rock of our salvation. To the rock of our salvation. Now that aspect of being a rock of our salvation is referring to something that does not change. Despite the changing environment we might be going through. Look with me very quickly at Psalm 62. Psalm 62. And you will notice there that this God is being referred to as the rock of our salvation, but there is another picture that is added to that of rock, and you cannot miss the fact that it has to do with the capacity to still be intact in the midst of the shifting and changing circumstances around you. Psalm 62 and verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. Notice this. My fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Again, we'll just skip the next part and come to verse 5. <clears throat> For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. And here it is. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. But look at verse 7 as well. On God rests my salvation and my glory. And there it is. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. So when the Bible there is challenging us to, to come with shouts of praise to God, it's not suggesting that where we are coming from, everybody is singing, he's a jolly good fellow, he's a jolly good fellow, and popping wine or champagne in front of you. It's not speaking in those terms. What it is saying is this, that despite what is happening around you, you have a refuge, you have a fortress in whom you can hide. And therefore, come and praise him for who he is. That immovable, unshakable savior who is your God. And in a sense, that's what he goes on to deal with as well. <clears throat> but this time, he is bringing out something of God's greatness. His greatness. And that, no doubt, is the reason why he is an impregnable rock. Verse 3 to verse 5. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights, <clears throat> the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, 
and his hands formed the dry land. What is the psalmist telling us there? Well, it's quite simple. It's the fact that all human beings have gods. They have something they lean on and trust in. It doesn't matter who they are. Even when they call themselves atheists, and what they really mean is that they don't believe there is a God out there, there is something else that they are leaning against. It might be money. It might be their own physical strength. It might be their reputation that they have ended up making. They, they've become very well-known, famous, and so on. There is something that they are leaning against. What the psalmist is saying here is that our God is infinitely greater than all those little gods that everybody else is leaning on. And often, when everything is okay, people can boast in their small gods. You wait until things come crashing down. Then you are grateful that your God is Jehovah who is greater than all these gods that give way in the midst of life's real trials. That's one aspect that he brings out. The other aspect is by contrasting him with the whole of creation. And he deliberately deals with the contrasts. So he begins there with valleys, the depths, there and then he comes on to mountains and then on the other he contrasts seas with land the, the 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 are picture languages there as well we won't have time to unpack them but the point nonetheless is that all those are in his hands under his control compared to who he is. Surely, that's the kind of God you want to hide in. That's the kind of God you want to praise, even in the midst of the trials of life. He is the one you want to hide in. In an earlier psalm, Psalm 46, this is the way the psalmist puts it talking in terms of the God who is a rock, the God who is a refuge, the God who is a fortress. I love the way in which he is described, especially in the second and third verse. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a present help in trouble. So trouble is there. And he's your help in the moment of trouble. And then he pictures the worst situations that could occur in verse 2 and verse 3. He says, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. 
though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And then he changes gears and says, there is a river that makes glad the city of God. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And what is that? God is in the midst of her. Oh, brethren, that's the challenge that we have. We are being someone to come out of the real situations of life, to come and gather with God's people in order to let our lungs get their exercise in singing his praises with the whole of our beings. He is worthy. But then, there is a change of gears here. And it is, again, a summons to us, but this time, to, to, to have a sense of solemnity with respect to the one before whom we are coming. Look at the way he puts it here in verse 6 and the first part of verse 7. The Bible says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. You can't miss the fact that the psalmist seems to have made some movement from that exciting, noise-making, singing, and praising to some sense of we are in the presence of majesty. There must be a sense of solemnity. There is an authority figure that we have before us. And therefore, we bow down. Therefore, we kneel. And that's not necessarily speaking about physical bowing or physical kneeling, which we can do. But you can do that outwardly without doing it in your heart. So it is the heart's posture that is primarily speaking about here. It is the posture that Jesus taught us to have when he taught us to pray. What we normally refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Notice the way it begins. Our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. May your name be glorified. May your name, all that you are, be worshipped. May your kingdom come. You are the ruler of heaven and earth. May your rule be acknowledged here below. 
So it is something of that reality that the psalmist is saying ought to be true about us. And I think we need a balance of both. Because sometimes it's easy for individuals to, to, to come into God's presence and all they are thinking about is that he's a kind of daddy or, or grandpa that we can sort of just play around and jump and so on and just have, have a grand time. Now granted, there's something of that, but he's also king of kings and lord of lords. He's also one who is surrounded by thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 angels in holy adoration. Sitting upon the throne of the entire universe. And therefore, that atmosphere needs to be captured. A friend of mine, in fact, one of our elders back home at church, um, is involved in civil engineering. And at one time, they were uh, putting new roads in some rural area of Zambia and when they went there, at some stage, they were told that you know, they needed to go and visit the chief, which makes sense. You acknowledge the chief's presence and so on. So when they got there, to his surprise, the chief was one of his classmates in secondary school, one of his friends. So when he saw him, he immediately went, wow, friend, and was moving towards him to hug him. Well, out came a few spears. And they stopped him dead in his tracks. <laughs> and the whole place was silent. So the chief asked for privacy. So everybody else left, was left with his friend. And his friend said to him, My friend, I'm a chief here. So... What we used to do before, yes, is what we used to do before. This is my palace. Okay? And he said, yes. So the chief tapped somewhere, and all those individuals came back in. And that's how everything went forward from that point onwards. He came and told us that I could not believe the atmosphere that was now around somebody who used to simply be my friend. Well, you've entered the place of royalty. You've entered the place of authority and power. You need to acknowledge it. And friends, when we come together to worship, yes, we are coming into the presence of one who is a fortress, a shelter, a rock, 
who's done us so much good that we just want to really just praise him. We want to be besides ourselves. But at some stage, we do need to pause and realize that this is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, one who has known no beginning, no end, one who is infinite, in all his attributes, who is all-powerful and all-knowing, who has glory that surrounds his throne, that causes even angels to cover their eyes. Such a one is the one in whose presence we have come. We ought to be grateful that such a God has stooped down to become our God. To enter into a covenant relationship with us. He has come down. And it is that aspect that the psalmist captures here when he says, Let us worship, bow down, kneel before the Lord our maker. And then he says, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. What a privileged people we are. That such a great being has condescended to enter into this relationship with us. He's still the God of the universe. But he's also now our Father in heaven. And something of the profundity and the immensity of his being must still be acknowledged as we are saying, Our Father, we worship you. Do you have that balance when you come to gather with God's people? Do you come full of praise and at the same time sense that I am in the presence of the thrice holy being? Well, that's the challenge that we are being given here. Let's make sure we have both of those realities. And then thirdly, and I'm sure it's the inevitable end to which we go, it is this. We need to quieten our hearts to listen to him speaking to us. And not only listening to him speaking to us, but resolving to obey him. And that's what we find in this last section, the second half of verse 7 to the very end. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa, in the wilderness, 
When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. As I said, you come in exuberant, joyful. He's a good God. He's been good to me. In the midst of all the trials of life, I can go into his shelter and the storm passes by. And in the midst of that, you then recollect who he is. You pause, you worship. He's the great God. He is your God and so forth. And then it is time for his word to be opened. It's time for him to address you. You don't choose the topic. <laughs> it's the entire counsel of God. It is the inspired scriptures that instruct, rebuke, correct, and train in all righteousness. It matters that you are sitting there as Paul spoke to the Lord Jesus when he said, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus. And then the Lord said, I'm going to tell you what you are going It's for you to have the attitude of submission to this great God. To say to him, search me, try me. Show me any hidden sin in me. Cleanse me and lead me in the ways everlasting. I've come to meet with you. Speak to me. Speak to me. And sadly, that's where we often tend to fail. And that's when the means of grace literally fall to the ground without blessing us. It is a failure to say at the end of listening to a sermon, Lord, what would you have me to do? I've listened to the proclamation of your word, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, however long. Now, as I go out of that door, what is it about my life? that you have pointed out to me, that I might be more and more like Christ. And often, the Lord points to areas that are related to our lives out there. And that's where we go, ouch. Because perhaps... There's someone you need to go and reconcile with. 
And pride just says, no, I can't. I can't. Perhaps there's some friendships that are dragging you the wrong way, downhill. And the Lord is saying, that unequal yoke you need to break. And you say, no, Lord, that person, those people, they mean so much to me. No. In other words, we end up doing exactly what these people did when God said, enough is enough. And the sad reality is this. Almost everyone who left Egypt never got into the promised land. Almost everyone. That's sobering, isn't it? Almost everyone. Why? Well, quickly, Psalm 81. Psalm 81. This is the way the Bible puts it there. I'll begin from verse 7. Psalm 81. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, which has been mentioned in Psalm 95. Now listen to God's plea. And here it is, verse 8. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, Verse 11, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. That's the tragedy. It was in the midst of those tests to fail to listen to God. And what a tragedy it must be because if there is any place where God by his spirit meets with his people, it is in the gathered church and especially on the Lord's day. And yet you have individuals who will go to church year after year after year and still end up in hell. What a tragedy. And why is that? It's simply because of the hardening of the heart. The hardening of the heart. In the New Testament, in uh, the book of Hebrews, there's a lengthy section there, I won't read the whole of it. Um, Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews makes much of this same section we have read in, um, the, at the end of, of Psalm 95. Uh, Hebrews 3, verse 7 to verse 10, is literally picked out of Psalm 95 and put there. In fact, it's all the way to verse 11. Listen to verse 12 now. 
This is the New Testament application. Take care, brothers, lest there be in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. He's saying, make sure you don't have that kind of heart that does not believe in God's word, God's promises, God's challenges, that has, has become so evil that it is rebelling and stubborn when God is speaking. Make sure you don't have that kind of heart. But instead, encourage one another, exhort one another, as long as it is today, and here it is, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then he basically continues again today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let me quickly come to the end of this particular section, and uh, that is verse 11 of chapter 4. You can read the section in between. It's really taking this issue to the nth degree. And then verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You might be in a crowd this morning, hidden behind someone else's head. God sees you as though you are the only one in this room. He knows exactly what thoughts are going through your mind. And he's addressing you through his word. He is saying, repent. He is saying, as we heard in the first hymn this morning, come to me. Just as you are, with all your filth and sin, come to me. If you try to prepare yourself, you will never come to me. Just as you are, come to me. My blood is sufficient. To wash away your sin. Come to me. The Spirit of God is wrestling with your conscience. Saying, give up your sin. Christ is all you need. He's everything. Come to him. And make him your altogether lovely one. He's not speaking to you as a crowd. He's speaking to you as an individual. What will your response be? 
There can only be two options. One is to yield, to obey, and therefore to be blessed. And the gathered church becomes a blessing to you, a means of grace. Another is to walk out of those doors saying, no, never. And like Judas, you walk out of the Lord's Supper and it is night. What will your response be? Only you know. But with all the love in my heart, I plead with you. Don't go in the direction of God's wrath. Fly to Christ and experience his grace in full measure. Let's pray. Our great and glorious Father in heaven, thank you for this Old Testament display of true worship. We are here. We've sung your praises. Grant, O oh Lord, that you might prevail on our hearts by your Spirit to truly worship you and to submit to your word that this place might not be a gateway to hell, but rather an open door to heaven for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.